We're in the next section, Betrayal and Farewell. And this is chapter 22, verses 1 through 38. In this section, Jesus connects the Passover with himself. And the fact that he had a, a numerous times said that he had to die in order to redeem the world. His death and resurrection were the inauguration of a new covenant and an age about which all prophets have spoken. This leads to his betrayal and arrests that begin to rapidly speed things up to his death. So chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which was called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find some way to execute Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. In Luke's gospel, he tells you that the Passover and unleavened bread were one festival, the same. And that's not technically accurate according to Leviticus chapter 23. But it had morphed into that by the time of Jesus. So in Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 4, we're given a description of the Passover and the eleven. And Passover and eleven bread were two different festivals. And Passover was on the 14th of Nisan, which would have been a different day of the week every single year. And it basically was a celebration of God bringing them out of Egypt and um, sparing them from the wrath of God that he poured out on Egypt for their sins by them placing the blood of a Passover lamb, where God passes over, their, over them, his wrath, on the doorposts, and they partook of a lamb. So they sacrificed the lamb um, to take their place, and that under the judgment of God's wrath, they took the blood and put it on the doorposts, and then they went in as a family, and they eat, ate the lamb together as a family, in communion with God, trusting that this lamb's death would spare them from the judgment of God. And the next morning they left. Then Leviticus goes on and says, the day after the Passover, which would have been the 15th of Nisan, they were to begin the Unleavened Bread Festival. And the Unleavened Bread Festival was a seven-day celebration. The first day was an, a Sabbath. So that means that was a Sabbath that week, and if it fell on a Wednesday or a Thursday or Friday, it would be a Sabbath. And then there would be a second Sabbath that week of the year, traditional regular weekly sabbath of saturday and then they were so they were to do no work or anything like that on the first day and for the next seven days they were after that the next six days they were allowed to work and all that kind of stuff but in that seven day period they were to not eat or um, have yeast of any kind in their home in fact they would clean the yeast out so it was a week of repentance removing yeast which is symbolic of sin literally as they remove the yeast to force themselves into a contemplative heart of symbolically and metaphorically confessing their sins and repenting it as they swept out their houses. And so these are two completely different festivals, although they were back to back, one day and then the very next day for seven days. By the time we get to Jesus, there are so many Jews in Israel. There is no way, there's, no, there's not enough hours in the day to sacrifice the lambs of every single family of Israel in one day. And so what happens is that the Passover ends up becoming the entire week of unleavened bread. And so what they would do is certain tribes were assigned to certain days of the week. And so you would come on your assigned day and you would do the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and then begin your unleavened. And so if your Passover was assigned to you in the middle of unleavened week, you would do the unleavened going up to that, and then you would do the Passover lamb in the middle of that, and then you would continue the unleavened week. 
And so everybody fit into a different time. And so this is why Luke says now the Passover was a week long in order to accommodate for that. This also leads us to the idea that even Jesus was not doing the Passover on the actual Passover day because he had to be crucified on the literal 14th of Nisan to fulfill prophecy, which means when he's doing the Passover with his disciples, it has to, it's the night before. So we know that he does the Passover meal with his disciples, and then he gets arrested that night in the middle of the night and put on trial, and the trial is done and over with basically by the, sun, by the time the sun is rising. And then he's taken to the cross and being crucified on the actual literal Passover day, the 14th of Nisan. So when, the, when he says, go get the Passover lamb, or go, go prepare the room for us to have the Passover, none of the disciples are thinking like, what? That's tomorrow. Because they were used to Israel doing it over an entire week period. So they wouldn't have seen anything odd about that, because they also probably, had, they, coming from different tribes, were probably assigned to different days of the week, but this is now their new master, so they're doing the day that he has chosen. So this is what Luke means by it was one festival in practice, even though technically it was a one-day thing and the unleavened was a completely separate thing. We've already been told that the Pharisees are looking for a way to execute Jesus, but they're not doing it because they're afraid of the people. This will ultimately lead to the plan of arresting him in the middle of the night. Um, the more private, isolated that the arrest is, then the less that the crowds are going to react in a negative way. And if they can have the trial completely done and over with, by the time the sun rises, then no one has any idea until it happens. And then, of course, they're probably just hoping by the time that they have religiously stamped that they've had a trial and they've convicted him, that the people will just fall in line with that. Like, well, oh, I guess, well, it's one thing for you to arrest my favorite person in public, and that's shocking. It's another thing to wake up in the morning and the media has told me he's been declared guilty under investigation. Then you're more likely to fall in line with that because it wasn't in your face. And here's the thing. This is the beauty of corruption. The more behind the doors and the less in front of your face it is, the less shocking it is, and the less likely you're just to go along with it and just accept it as the truth. The more public it is and the more shocking it is, the more riled up you're going to get. And so some of the greatest plans of government are done behind closed doors before everybody wakes up so that we just kind of accept it when we're being told that this is what's happened. And so this is what they're planning to do. But it also lets you know that once again, we talked about this, you can only, you see, for those who want to be a dictator one day, um, the, the delicacy in being a dictator or a monarchy is obviously you have absolute power and you want to oppress people or you just gradually fall into that whether you realize it or not until one day you are doing it, but by then you enjoy the power, so you might as well keep doing it. Um, so you press them, but you can oppress the people, but you know, we know from revolutions throughout history, you can only do so much before the people rise up and overthrow you. And the people always will overthrow the government because they far outnumber them. And so the, the, the delicacy of oppressing people is you have to oppress them in such a way that you fill them with fear and they are willing to do whatever you want and you can have what you want because they're too afraid of everything that they might lose if, you, if they fight you and rebel against you. 
But if you push them too hard, then you break them. And when you break them, then they lose everything, and then they have nothing to lose in their rebellion. And that's when rebellions happen. Rebellions happen when they've been broken, and they think, I have nothing left to lose. And so even though the Pharisees dominate everybody, they know that they can't, they don't want to break the people. Because if they break the people, then their power base collapses underneath them. And so they, they have to fa- walk that line of, I can control you, but I need you to still be severely bent and not broken. And so this is what they're afraid of. And this is what they're doing. And at this moment, verse 3, it says, Then Satan entered Judas. At this point, it's very clear that Satan is involved in all this. And Satan is seeking, the, the, the spiritual warfare definitely comes in. And this is where we kind of see and Satan left for a more opportune time after the wilderness. Now, don't get me wrong. Satan has been back multiple times. But this is endgame. This is endgame right here. And so he has definitely come back with a vengeance in this sense. But the fact that he's entering Judas means that he's controlling the actions of Judas. Now, first, this points to some kind of possession. Now, I know there's a huge argument in Christianity of whether demons can actually possess human beings, as in do they actually fully enter into them and take control of them, or do they just strongly come upon them and grab a hold of their shoulders and like manipulate them and that kind of stuff. And I tend to lead to the former, but once again... I've never been possessed. <laughs> you don't get reliable interviews with people who are possessed. But people who've been possessed really pretty much felt like things were in them. But that doesn't change the fact that Satan is directly involved in Jesus' life, manipulating his events and his actions. So this word, you can argue whether it's strongly cloaked and wrapped around him and controlling him like a puppet or whether he's actually in them doesn't matter. The point is Judas' words and actions are Satan now. He has done things in his life that the scriptures do not tell us how he got to that point, how he got to being an open vessel for Satan. That doesn't matter. The point is that he is a vessel for Satan at this point. And so everything he's doing is to get Jesus to the cross to kill him, which points to the fact that Satan has no idea that this is God's plan. Satan is powerful. He's another dimensional being that has far greater power than us, far greater power. He has far greater knowledge than us. He's been around for thousands upon thousands of years. So he is incredibly knowledgeable. He is an expert on human behavior. I mean, that's like a clinical psychologist's dream to be able to have an observation of people for thousands of years, clinical trials. So he's, he is definitely it's someone who is greatly so powerful that our only command is to be told to flee to flee, or to call in the name of Christ, a greater weapon. But it doesn't change the fact that he's still a gnat compared to the power of God. And, and that's even giving him too much. He still is finite, limited to one place at one time, a certain amount of knowledge, and he's completely outside the will and the plan of God, so he has no privy knowledge. And if ever, all the greatest scholars of the world have misinterpreted the scriptures, because God kept it from them, then likewise he's done it for Satan. And so Satan, thinking that he's defeating Christ, is actually the tool of God in order to make these things happen. This is one of the greatest examples of how no matter what's happening in our history or our current events, God is behind it. And no matter how dark it is and how demonic you think it is, and rightfully so, God has not lost control. 
if he can have control over the greatest demonic power in the world at the most watershed event of all of human history and it's nothing for him to control and make things happen and nothing can stop the word of God then how much so in anything that we be going through in our culture right now I know that's easier said than putting your faith in that but that's the truth that's the truth so verse 3 then Satan entered Judas the one called Iscariot who was one of the twelve he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard. Remember, this is a temple state. So the government is the religious institution. That's why the government and the religion, this is why the, so to speak, pastor versions of the ancient world had their own military, because they are the government. How he might betray Jesus, handing him over to them. They were delighted and arranged to give him money. So Judas agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, when no crowd was present. So now they have their inside man. And he's betraying them, we're told, for 30 pieces of silver. Which is interesting because 30 is a multiple of 3, and 3 is symbolic of redemption. And silver is actually symbolic of redemption as well. So the very thing that is leading to the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus is actually the very thing that's going to redeem the world. And that's the metaphor that is here. And so Judas is in league with the high priest. Now, all this points to the absolute diabolical corruption of the priesthood. The religious leaders, the political religious leaders responsible for the religious life of the people are so disconnected from God that a demon-possessed man comes in in order to betray the Messiah who fulfills all the scriptures of the books of the Bible that they're supposed to be an expert on. And yet they do not have the eyes to see nor the ears to hear to discern the reality of the nature of Judas, the fulfillment of Christ's scripture, and their own hearts anti-God to see exactly what is going on here. Or if they do, they don't care. And so this points to the absolute corruption of the high priesthood at this point. And once again, this is the next time that they're afraid of the crowd. So all of this, all of this is absolute crowd public opinion manipulation. Absolutely. Verse 7. Then the day for the feast of the unleavened bread came, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us to eat. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? He said to them, Listen, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the owner of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs, make preparations there. So they went, and they found things just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Once again, we see almost the same kind of scenario that we saw with the triumphal entry. So Jesus said, go to this man, ask him for the donkey, all this kind of stuff. You will find it, and then said, the Lord needs it, and then bring it to me. And they found it just as he said. Now he's telling them the same thing about the Passover. This is the only time in Luke's gospel, that, or any of the gospels, that there's this absolute, this has all been prepared in the advance, just tell them what to do, and they will obey. And the fact that it then ends with, it was just as he said. And the emphasis here is, Jesus is in absolute control of these events. 
you've got the Pharisee, the sorry, the priesthood, and his own disciple betraying him, plotting and conspiring against him. And yet, despite that, Jesus is in absolute control. He is in absolute control. These events are his. He knew that when he had to die, and he's making that happen. Now, when the hour came, verse 14, Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles joined him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover meal with you before I suffer. You can see a picture of this in the notes. But this table that they sit at is the triclinium. The triclinium is a horse-shaped table, except it's squared off, not rounded. So it has three sides to it, where the fourth side is opened up. And what the guests would do is this is the table of wealth. This is the table of leisure and freedom, where most people would sit down on a pillow or on the floor, and they would eat at a table, like a coffee table kind of a thing. If you're sitting on the floor and you had a coffee table, they would sit there and they would eat together as a family. This is the table of rich people reclining, free men reclining. And what they would do, and one of the very few things the Jews would actually, not every single Jew, but some Jews would have a Passover meal like this to remind themselves that they are the free people because of the Passover meal. And so what you would do is you would recline at this table so that your, 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 your feet are reclining away. You're lying down on your left side and you're reclining away. Your feet are moving away from the table and you're on the outside of the table and you are then leaning on your left elbow and you are leaning on these pillows at, around the table and then you are reaching with your right hand to the food. And everybody's eating, eating off the same plate. So there'd be a plateful of dates, a plateful of meat, a plateful of whatever, and you just all pull from it and eat it, kind of like a Super Bowl party and reaching into the same bowl of chips and the hors d'oeuvres and all that kind of stuff. And so they would recline. And this is how they eat. So they're on their left side, and everybody's like in this order, so left side. So that means the person to the right of you is reclining towards you. They're on their left side facing you. They're eating at this table, and the, open, the fourth side is open so that the servants can keep bringing the food to the table and restocking it. In John's gospel, it says that John spoke to Jesus, and Jesus leaned back and reclined into John's bosom to talk to him. Because when you're reclining on your left side, holding yourself up with your left elbow on the floor, the only way you can talk to the guy to the right of you is who's behind you and to your back is if you basically would just lean back on your back and kind of lean over, which basically puts your head right into his chest. And then you have to talk to him like that. Now, for some of you, this would be a total violation of your personal bubble, um, but that was just the way that they did it back then. And so it was the idea of being free and reclining and, and just being the luxury of life. And so this is how they sat around him. So basically, Leonardo da Vinci's painting is completely historically wrong. So, although artistically very symbolic. And point of perspective and the triangles pulling everything in and all that kind of stuff. It's still a work of art, just historically wrong. Welcome to the art world. This is where he's reclining. And he says, I have longed to eat this before I suffer. And once again, they're like, we didn't hear that word. Okay, <laughs> but we don't talk about that word. 
He is willing to eat this because he knows that even though this is going to bring the most excruciating day in all of human history, it's going to bring the redemption of the world. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he makes it clear, like, this is the, you're going to keep going on year after year after year having the Passover meal, but I'm not. I, I'm going to have the Passover meal tonight, and then I'm going to leave you, and by the time you have the next Passover a year from now, I'm going to be gone. And I will not eat the Passover meal until everything is fulfilled, basically the second coming of Jesus Christ. So as we continue to go on eating the Passover meal in remembrance of him, he is holding off until the final fulfillment can actually be accomplished. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. So he goes into the cup. Now, in a traditional Passover meal, there are four cups that are actually taken and passed around. And so if you're interested in how a Passover meal is done, I have a Passover meal on my website. I have a whole liturgy that I wrote and a recording that kind of walks you through it all and that kind of stuff. And basically what happens is there's four cups. The head of the family, um, and by four cups we mean like that you would drink from the cup four times. And so the head of the family would hold up the first cup. And the first cup is the cup of sanctification. And it basically is a reminder that God is at work in the life of Israel through sanctifying them by bringing them out of Egypt, making them a new people, and bringing them into the promised land, and giving them the law, all these things that we need to do, have in order to become righteous. And so it's a cup of sanctification. It is shared and passed around to everybody. Everybody would drink from the same cup, as we have seen in these stories. Then the herbs are dipped in salt water and eaten. So there's this green branch that represents life, and um, springtime and new life and that kind of stuff, and is dipped in the salt water, which represent the bitter tears of the Israelites as they're working in the wilderness. Yet at the same time, they're looking forward to the day that God will bring life, eternal life and hope to them. And they dip it in and, re and eat it as a reminder of the tears that they've cried before God saved them and redeemed them. The father then tells the story of the Exodus. So he goes through the whole story of the Exodus as a remembrance. How many times does Deuteronomy say, and Joshua judges, do this in remembrance of me? And Jesus will even repeat those words. It's a very Deuteronomic phrase. So they, will, they, will, they want to remember where they came from. And he delivers an exposition on Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 5 through 11. And then Psalms 113 through 114 are sung. They're actually sung. Then the second cup is brought out. This is the cup of judgment. And the cup of judgment is drunk. And so what they do, they would pass this around, and many times they would actually dip their finger in the cup, and they would drop a drop of wine on the table for each of the plagues. They would actually say the plague and drop it on. And it's a reminder that God brought judgment on Egypt, which is symbolic of slavery, sin, and death, and that he then delivered them, and that the idea is that they drink of this. The head of the family then blesses the bread, and they bring out the bread, the unleavened bread that has no yeast in it, and he breaks it as symbolic of being broken and passes around to everybody. The meal is then eaten. And so at that point, they would eat the Passover lamb, they would fellowship, they would celebrate, they would do their traditional things. And then the last two cups are drunk. And the, these are the cups of redemption and the cup of kingdom. And so the cup of redemption is drunk, and the idea is the excess brought the redemption. 
and then the cup of the kingdom is drunk and the idea that this leads to the coming of the kingdom of God. And it's supposed to remind them and help them intentionally reflect on the things that God has done and the things that God will do through this whole Passover thing. And then as they leave or in the night, go to bed or whatever they do, they would sing Psalms 115 and 118. So Jesus drinks the first two cups. Okay, so he passes the, 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 by the fact that he says this cup is the cup of redemption means that he's on the third cup at that point. He's on the third cup. And so he passes these cups around and tells them to drink it. He tells them, I'm going to suffer and die. But they leave and never drink the fourth cup. They never drink the fourth cup. And the reason that they're doing this is the kingdom has not yet come. This Passover is unique. So he's passing it around. He's saying, I have come to sanctify you. Remember in John chapter 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit coming after he leaves in order to sanctify them and guide them and redeem them. So that cup is drink. He has come to drink the cup of judgment. Okay? And so that's going to happen. He's going to take the judgment of the world's sins upon him on the cross that night. And they're going to experience a new exodus. Remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses talking about his exodus. So this is going to bring the judgment on sin. So then he passes that cup around. He says, this is the cup of redemption through my blood. Now that's something that they would have never heard of. That is not a part of a traditional Passover meal. By passing that around, he says, this night is going to bring you redemption. Well, the next night is going to bring you redemption. This is what I'm accomplishing on the cross. But at that point, they get up and they leave. And then the fourth cup is never drank. Because this is not just a traditional Passover that looks back on what God has done in the Exodus. This is a Passover that is looking at how God is going to fulfill on a more cosmic spiritual level what has been physically done back in the Exodus. And what Christ is saying by not drinking the fourth cup is that that fourth cup is not coming. That's not a part of this fulfillment. This is not why I'm here. And he's made that very clear when we went through chapters um, 21, where he basically talked about how this is the beginning of the end. And when you hear of wars and and peace and that kind of stuff run, and they're going to put you on trial and that kind of stuff. But all these things will lead to the coming of the kingdom of God. And so they don't ever drink the fourth cup. And it is at this point that the disciples would be very confused. Because even though everything is following the way that it should, and the night that it's on is not a bothersome to them, the fact that all of a sudden he's talking about blood in connection to wine. Blood is never connected to wine. Okay, The, the, the wine is the, the drink of the kings. Blood is the, the sacrifices of the priest. And these two things don't come together according to the law. And yes, there's some passages in the, the Psalm 110 and Isaiah and a few others that talk about these two coming, Zechariah chapter 3, who talk about these things coming together. Remember, they've kind of put those out of their mind because they really just want a conquering king. And so that would have blown them away. Like, what do you, this is not about blood. This is not about your body being broken. Why are we leaving Jesus? We haven't drank the fourth cup. Okay, and then you're going to take us out into the, the woods, the olive gardens, in the middle of the night? Like, what? We're supposed to stay in. Remember the wrath of God coming by. Like, 
th this point, and then, oh, you're talking about your suffering again. Why are we talking about that again? Okay, these are the things that would have been very confusing to him. And then there's that whole discourse of John chapter 14 through 17, which even today, in post hindsight of all this stuff, is still very challenging chapters. And we're not even going to get into that because that's the book of John. But that would have been blowing their mind too. They're, they're just confused with this. So the, not only are they confused by what he's saying, they're confused by him violating the structure of the Passover meal and not even fully understanding it or why he's doing this. And so he takes that cup of redemption. And after giving thanks, he said, This, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's not going to do any more drinking. He's not going to participate in these Passover meals until this is all fulfilled. The fourth cup. He, he can't do the Passover. The Passover for him has to remain in pause until he's ready to drink the fourth cup, which is the coming of Christ to the earth and establishing the kingdom of God. So for him, he's still not finished with that Passover meal of that night. And it's not until he comes back a second time at the end of Revelation that he can continue and finish that Passover meal truly, fully in its fulfillment. Until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup, and after that they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, and a new covenant in my blood. So at this point, he's connected bread to his body and blood, the wine to his blood. And, and they would not get this because that already happened back in Exodus with the lamb. Why are you talking about, you're not a lamb. Like, you know how there's some people who take everything so literally? I wonder, like, which disciples are they? Like, what? What? What is going on here? This verb, this is my body, indicates representation and not identification. So the way that this verb is used is an actual metaphor. And metaphors literally are where you say something is something as if it's literally true, but it's not. So simile is like you say like, he's a, it's like it's coming down like a dove. You're not saying that it is a dove, although people still misinterpret that passage. And you're saying it's like it. They're, they have something that's in common. But it's very clear to everybody that they and the dove are different. Or he's as big as a house or as strong as a mountain. Those are similes. I'm not saying that they're the same thing. But a metaphor is when I say he's a beast. Or you're a rock. Or in the face of temptation, you're an oak and unmovable. Well, I'm saying that you are that, but everybody knows that's not literal. And so this is a metaphor where there are church traditions that have taken this very literal, where they have said this is literally the body of Christ. That, like it transforms in that into every single Passover or Mass that they do. But the problem is that Hebrews makes it very clear that Christ is crucified once and for all, and not again and again and again like the lambs and the goats and the um, ox of the First Testament. Here's the other thing that's really key here. He says, I will not do this Passover meal again until I return. Now that's important because this shows you that Christ is not just a fatalist. He's not just talking about his death 
for the sake of going to die because he's obsessed with death and he wants to die and he's a sadomasochist or suicidal tendencies or any of that kind of stuff or some crazy. By the fact that he keeps talking about his death but then says, I will come back and drink this again with you means that he believes in his mind that death is not the end for him. That death is not the end. There is something after death that he's coming back from in order to continue this meal and to do this meal again with the disciples on a regular basis. This is how he pulls everything together. Remember, in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, God gives the first prophecy of the Messiah through Judah. Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he comes to Judah, and he says, Judah, you are a lion. A lion's cub. You are a lioness. Who can rouse you? Who can stand against you? The scepter will not depart from your feet. The ruler's staff will not depart from your feet until it comes to the one whom it belongs. And the idea is that the, the ruler's staff, the headship of Judah or Israel, will keep passing from descendant of Judah to descendant of Judah to descendant of Judah until it comes to one and it will stay there and remain with him. Now this doesn't prove eternality, but it does begin to lay the foundation for eternality. And then he goes on and he says, he, that one, will tie his colt to the branch, his donkey to the vine. He will wash his garments in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth will be whiter than milk. And the idea is the donkey and the colt are symbolic of kingship and wine is symbolic of joy and the abundance of life what he's saying is that his kingship is going to be known for the abundance of joy and life and he is going to be clothed in joy and life and that his eyes which are the windows of the soul are going to be filled with joy and life and the words that are going to come out of his mouth are going to be sweet and life-giving like milk and we have never had a leader that is like that in all of its entirety. Promising a leader that will bring peace and joy and life unlike anything we've ever seen in all of creation. And this is exactly what Jesus says over and over again. I have come to give you life to the fullest and make your joy complete. He says this over and over again. That wine imagery, we talked about this when we got to the breaking of the bread and the, the Jesus turning the water into wine as his first miracle in John chapter 2. That wine and grain and olive oil gets repeated over several times in the, the God, um, sorry, the prophets as the sign of the coming of the kingdom, the sign of the Messiah. And so God makes it very clear in Joel chapter 2 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 that when I bring you back from exile, I will bring you back to a land that there is an abundance of wine, grain, and olive oil. That is the sign of the kingdom of God, the Messiah, and the new covenant. And he follows it up by saying, And that day I will make a new covenant with you. So Jeremiah 31 literally says, There will be an abundance of grain, wine, and olive oil. And then he goes in and says, And that day I will make a new covenant with you. That will not be like the old covenant that I made with your fathers, where they broke and violated it. But it will be a new covenant that will put the law on your hearts, and everybody will know God. And now Jesus says, This is the new covenant wine and bread the abundance of it i've already shown you that i can multiply the wine i've already showed you that i can multiply the bread now the wine is going to be poured out and the bread is going to be broken which is my blood and my body for you for the new 
covenant. And so he's giving it not only a literal interpretation that there will be an abundance of blessings in land, wine, and bread, but this is also metaphorical of a much more cosmic thing that I'm accomplishing and of my own body. As they go on, wine is always connected to Messiah, kingship, joy, power, all that kind of stuff. It's what wealthy people are able to drink. It represents the abundance of life and the relaxing of life and that kind of stuff. And other than the Passover meal, the wine isn't really tremendously connected to blood or religious things in a lot of way. That's a brief minor connection. But even when they do the libation offering where they pour out the wine, it's still primarily about life and joy and wealth and that kind of stuff. Jesus comes along and he connects the wine to the ceremonial drinking water. In John chapter 2, he, he turns the ceremonial uh, not drinking water, the ceremonial washing water of the Levitical washings of cleansing your sins, and he turns that to wine. And all of a sudden at that moment, wine is now connected to the ceremonial cleansing of your sins. And at that moment, he's connecting kingship and priesthood together. And then now he's taking that wine that he's connected to the washing of sins through the turning the ceremonial washing water to wine. And now he's saying this wine is my blood, which now he's connecting it to sacrifice and atonement. And so in all these ways, he's connecting kingship, priesthood, and the sacrificial lamb all together and saying, this is me. This is my blood. I am the lion and the king, and I am the priest, and I am the sacrificial lamb. I am all these things. And of course, they don't get any of that. And then by the breaking of the bread, he's saying, it's my body that will be broken for you. I am the temple of God, but my temple has to be broken so they can be rebuilt, as he will say later. And so these things are pointing towards the fact of this new covenant that Jesus is making. So this is fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31, where he is making this new covenant that will fulfill it. And now what's basically saying is that the Mosaic law is no longer going to be the prominent thing. You had a Mosaic law, but people kept breaking that over and over and over and over again. And therefore, that law cannot save you. It was never meant to save you, but it can't save you. But it was there, as Paul says, until something better could come along. But it's not some pathetic plan of God because all the Mosaic law pointed to that better thing. It wasn't that plan A failed and God came up with plan B, but plan A did work because plan A was to disciple you and teach you and point you and tutor you to the one that would come so that you would recognize him when he comes and then he would do all the things that the law was talking about in a way that we can't do it. And so now this law is going to be transformed, morphed, not necessarily replaced by the Holy Spirit. The law is coming the Holy Spirit. And the same law that was given by God and given to Moses to guide you is now going to be placed in your hearts because the God that gave you the law is also the Holy Spirit who is now in you. And so the law and the Holy Spirit would be in agreement with each other. But now this law is in you, which now gives you the ability and the desire to actually fulfill the law. The Mosaic law did not give you the desire to obey. And it does not give you the ability to obey. It just tells you what obedience looks like. Now the Holy Spirit's coming. 
And so this is what Jesus is saying is, I'm fulfilling Jeremiah 31. That new covenant is directly out of Jeremiah 31, 31, where the law would be written on our hearts and we can all know God. But it's also pointing to the fact that we're all going to become prophets now. That no longer do we need some man or woman to be taken up into the divine counsel of Yahweh and to be told the will of God, and then they come down and tell us, but what if they get it wrong? We're not sure. Now we're all going to have the divine counsel placed inside of us so that we can all be privy to what the Holy Spirit is saying and what God is leading us in. Therefore, if I get it wrong and hearing and transmuting it to, or tra- communicating it to you, you're not completely dependent upon me. We are a body together, listening to the Spirit together. And so when Jesus says this is the new covenant, he is pointing to all of that. All those ideas, all those concepts, and saying this is the day that that is now fulfilled. Chapter 22, verse 21. But look, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man is is to go just as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they begin to question one another as to which of them could possibly be the one who would do this. And once again, this is pointing to the fact that Jesus knows everything that is going on. He has an absolute control of this night. you got to wonder what Jesus is thinking at that moment. Like, oh, crap. Yet he still goes along with it. I mean, because he's determined. Or maybe he's like, well, maybe he thinks it's Peter over there. <laughs> like, maybe he hasn't figured me out. But you know the heartbeat had to start beating a lot. But what he's saying is, I know this. I know who you are. I know what you're going to do. Don't think that this is out of my control. But woe to you for doing this. For doing this. A dispute also started among them over which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You think, aren't you done with this argument? I mean, these are, this is totally like kids. Like, they're arguing again over who's going to be great. Jesus is talking about dying. He's talking about new covenants. They're like, ooh, that's right. Which one of us will be the greatest? Well, you know what? It's Jesus' fault. He started bringing up who is the least because they're going to betray him. So we might as well talk about who's going to be the greatest. So Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. Instead, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the one who is served. For who is greater than the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is seated at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? So Jesus basically makes it clear that once again, you've got this all wrong. Greatness in the kingdom of God is self-sacrifice. It's servanthood. It's compassion. It's, it's, it's serving people. It's giving up things for them. It's not about power and dominance. The Gentiles... They are the greatest through their power and dominance. And they lord it over people. And then they pick benefactors to continue their power and their oppression over other people. But that's not true of my community. My community are people who are all equal with each other and that they prove their connection to me they, or they reveal their connection to me by their willingness to serve and sacrifice for other people to not lord over, to not dominate, not to oppress, or to find somebody else to succeed them, but to lift other people up to, for their benefit. And I model this. 
Because I'm at this table not to be your greatest. Even though I'm the head, I'm at this table to serve you. And of course, this obviously will lead into the foot washing scene of John chapter 14. This is what he basically is saying, is that this is the point. If you have not figured this out now, after three or four years of ministry, depending on how long it was, I keep talking about servanthood, and you keep missing it. Why? Because the three years that I have with you is nothing in competition to the lifetime that the Pharisees have had you. They're a product of their worldview. They're a product of their media. They're a product of their teaching. And so what Jesus only has four years. But what is going to change them? It's the Holy Spirit who allows the teachings of Christ to become transformative in their lives. But they had to wait till Acts chapter 2 for that one to happen. Here he quotes from Isaiah 53, 12. And this is a very clear connection to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, of the dying on the cross, as he talks about the need to suffer and die. And so all this Passover meal is setting them up for everything that is to come. And basically what he's saying is, this isn't actually the real Passover meal. The real Passover meal is when they break my body and they pour out my blood, literally. That is the true Passover meal. And that's what you're about ready to see, even though it will be one of the most horrific sights for you to see. Chapter 22, verse 28. You are the ones who reminded me, remained with me in my trials. Thus I grant to you a kingdom just as my Father granted to me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is interesting because they were just fighting about who is the greatest. And then Jesus says, hey, but you're actually going to be a part of the kingdom because you've remained with me. You've actually made lots of sacrifices to stick it out with me, and therefore I'm going to put you on thrones. Now you know at this point... They're probably really confused because he just told them that that's not what it's about, but now this is what it's about. But at the same time, they might be like, see, I told you. And they might be going back into their argument about thrones and who's the greatest. But remember, the idea is that you're going to lead Israel, the 12 tribes, in the same way that I lead, in the context of sacrifice and servanthood. Thrones is not about dominance. Thrones is about servanthood. Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan is demanded to have all, to have you all, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, look, Satan is seeking to destroy you, sift you. Sifting you is like running you through the sifter. And if a human got run through that, that would not be good. And so he's saying Satan wants to destroy you, chew you up and spit you out is what we would say today. Yet, I pray for you. I have determined that you are belonging to mine, that nothing can take you. And when you come back to me, now right there is, you're going to walk away. You're going to walk away. But I know you'll come back to me. I know you'll come back to me. But when you come back, you will be the one that strengthens the other disciples. You will be the one that will help them and gather them. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm with you. 
I'm ready to do anything you want. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to to face the worst trials with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. So Jesus like, no, 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 no. When push comes to the shove, you're going to run. You're going to abandon me and you're going to fail me. But don't lose heart because I just told you when you come back, you'll be a great strength to the other disciples. And of course, John tells us that Jesus also says, really, are you really truly willing to drink the cup of wrath with me? Like, can you really go to the cross with me and handle that? Are you really ready for that? Now, ironically, Peter will go to the cross in the name of Christ, but not until he has the Holy Spirit. He is not able to actually sacrifice to that point without the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or traveler's bag or sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? They replied, nothing. He said to them, but now the one who has a money bag must take it, and likewise a traveler's bag too. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the transgressors. For what is written about me is being fulfilled. So they said, look, Lord, there are two swords. Then he told them, that is enough. He tells them, look, remember when I sent you out before? I told you to not take anything. Now I want you to take money bags and cloaks and even swords. And you're like, geez, you're not making this easy for them. Peter's going to literally take that literally. And he's going to go out and get a sword. And then you're going to tell him, no, Peter, that's not what I meant. And you're like, my goodness, what do you mean that's not what you meant? You literally told us to sell things, to get a sword. But if you really think about it, Jesus is meaning this metaphorically. What he's meaning is just saying, be prepared. And he means be prepared, like have the resources that you need to be ready for the days that are coming. And the sword is probably metaphorical spiritual warfare or prayer, leaning on the Holy Spirit, that kind of stuff, which he's going to model to them in the garden that night of prayer. And the reason that you know that you can interpret this metaphorically is the fact that they say, well, we already have two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And at that point, you might realize, wait a minute, two swords against the entire army of Rome? That's not possible. I mean, I know you're the Messiah and you're going to do amazing miracles and that kind of stuff, but really, if that's true, then we don't need swords. But if you told us to get swords and two is enough, then that's not really enough. Like, so then you realize that this is falling apart literally and logically, so therefore it's got to be a metaphor. And that's how you know from the context that Jesus did not mean this literally. And Peter should have been able to put it all together, but he was just so excited because this is the day that they're going to kick rear in. Okay, and he's ready. And so Jesus makes it very clear, tonight you need to be ready. You need to be ready. Before, I just told you to go out and be ready to go wherever the Spirit leads you. Now, you need to actually be preparing. And then he's going to take them to the garden, where they're supposed to be getting ready and prepared. But, I mean, come on, Jesus. It is the middle of the night, and they're tired. And you've just kind of really rocked their world and their brains, and they're hurting. They need to sleep. This is the preparation for the actual crucifixion. 